everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today I'm talking with Darlene Machikan. Darlene is a music educator and co-host of her own podcast, Coloring the Melody. In this episode, Darlene and I talk about issues with traditional music education, including our personal philosophies, teaching during a pandemic, and all things equity, as well as some funny anecdotes here and there about method books and all sorts of things that have happened in our classrooms. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. Please let us know what you think and make sure to share it with your friends. And I will see you next Monday. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Darlene Machakon. I am an elementary general music teacher and choir teacher in Orange County, California. I'm actually originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up there and decided to move down to SoCal to go to Biola University. And I've, I love the Southern California vibe, love the weather here. And I've, yeah, I've just been here ever since. So. Uh, that's what I do mainly in the daytime. I also teach private piano lessons on the side. I've had experience teaching at different music studios and then decided, you know what, I'm just going to you know, decide to just teach on my own. I've actually worked for about four to five different music studios and I do see the benefits of working at a studio because then you can come in, they create the schedule for you, you don't have to worry about the students and the payments and things like that. But the huge uh, downside is definitely the pay and sometimes um, control over what you wanna teach. And we can totally delve into that later in yeah. our chat today. Um, but how I got into music. So when I was growing up, I didn't, I, went I, I kind of went back and forth on different occupations i thought i wanted to be an artist I, there was a this is really random but there was a time i wanted to be a meteorologist super random i was obsessed i love with, it <laughs> i was obsessed with the weather channel for like two years and so i would just watch weather stuff and for i think two months i thought oh my gosh i want to be a tornado chaser but i live in california so <laughs> i don't know where that came from i'm glad that phase is done <laughs> We have earthquakes, but that's 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 another thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so I got into high school and I took piano lessons since I was seven years old, and then I quit when I was fourteen. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to just taking a break. I'm going to go back, but I actually ended up not going back. I decided to focus more on playing keyboard with my church. And what I realized in that kind of, you know, that playing style was that, well, my years of piano lesson didn't teach me how to read chords and read lead sheets and how to listen with, with a band because just traditional piano lessons are just like, well, you're there by yourself, you play for yourself kind of thing. So in a way I was forced to really just listen outside of my own bubble and not just rely on my own ear, but also rely on, okay, what do I already know about piano? And what can I uh, tie into this kind of playing? So I spent a lot of my high school years focusing on that kind of style. And then I decided to major in music education, but mind you, I hadn't taken lessons in so long. So when I auditioned, it was the worst audition ever. It was actually a videotape audition and it was just bad, 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 bad. So they accepted me as a music minor. So they're like, eh, well, we'll let you in, but you can come in as a minor. So luckily I was able to start the core classes, like, you know, the theory and the sight singing and things like that. And then I told my piano teacher at the time, hey, I'm trying to get into music education. Maybe there's a way I can re-audition for the second semester. And so we worked on a few rep, and then I remember the month before my re-audition, my teacher said, um, I think you should do piano performance. And I look at her and think, why? 
I want to be a teacher. Like, I'm not good enough yeah. to be a piano performance major. I didn't play. I'm catching up on years and years of piano lessons here. But she goes, no, no, I, I see you have potential. Well, I'm like, oh, sure, I'll think about it. So then I ended up double majoring. <laughs> I ended up doing both of them. I said, no, I'll do piano performance and I'll do music education. So that was a fun journey for sure. I um, graduated in five years in one piece. <laughs> But the thing what I do, one of the things I do look back on in my time in college was how I took care of myself as a pianist. And so I felt that I really pushed myself to my maximum. And I was playing things that were incredibly technical, but I didn't take a lot of breaks. And my job was a double major, too. So I was trying to balance time uh, between observations and you know, practicing, and I went to a Christian university, so we took Bible classes, so of course I had to have time for that. Oh, and, the, and of course you took, I took random classes like psychology, and so it was hard to find rest in between, and of course, and like we talked about this earlier, Cassidy, about, you know, trying to work to, to, to pay for school, so I worked at a coffee shop um, in between practice times, and so I remember my final recital, and I, after I played, it was like, you know, an hour long, and I remember walking out and my arms were just done, like completely done. I remember holding all these flowers because, you know, after your performance, like, oh my gosh, here are some flowers. And I hold, held and I held them. I thought, I can't even hold these. Like, my arms are so tired and in pain. And I thought, I'm probably never going to do this again. So that I thought, well, this is the last time I'm going to play piano like this. <laughs> And then f fast forward a few years later when I was working at a music studio and they were arranging an opportunity for their students to perform at Carnegie Hall and they needed more people to, I guess, fill in the program. And they thought, Darlene, why don't you perform, for, perform as part of the program with your students? And I thought, nah. And I thought, wait. Why am I why am I turning down this opportunity to perform at Carnegie Hall? So I thought, oh, but I have to practice and it's been years since I played. I thought, you know what? Let's just do it. Why not? I'm going to challenge myself. And so I performed um, just a Bach prelude because I, I had such a short time frame to perform. But even during the preparation for that and even when I was on that stage, I could feel that this was not where I was meant to be. You know how yeah. like some people, they, they're doing something like, oh yeah, I'm definitely blossoming here. I'm like this, I get excited about things like this. But I remember just being on that stage and, and, and I guess my audience could probably think, oh my gosh, she's so into her piece. But deep down inside, I'm thinking, oh, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking like, you know what? Like playing piano is fun. Like I don't mind playing piano for myself, by myself, but I definitely find more joy when I'm playing in a band, playing with other people, um, mm -hmm. accompanying um, choirs. So I've been accompanying choirs ever since I graduated from college. Definitely found my joy just being with other people, which is why I think I definitely find myself just more as an educator. I prefer to watch my students be up on that stage, and I'd rather be up there with them in that atmosphere. So it's funny when people ask me, oh, so you're a musician too, so you must play really well. And I think, well, when was the last time I worked on my scales? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. Because def especially during this time when, uh, goodness, like our, our position is asking us to do so much. It can be difficult to take time to hone in on our skills. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Cassidy? Have well, you, ever you know, like I, that? yeah. I mean, I, I am. I feel myself and my personal philosophy. I'm very much as much of a performer as I am an educator. But I do understand um, that struggle, especially with this time and like balancing everything. And I have struggled to find time to work on my instruments. I do agree with you in that. And I think also just as educators, we have to develop a different skill set as well. So, you know, maybe I'm not sitting there and having to perform all these concertos for people all the time, but I'm having to sit there and figure out how am I supposed to teach the skills necessary to play those things to a beginning student or a middle school student or a high school student. So it's like, I feel like it's just a different set of skills that we have to learn and to develop. So it's not necessarily one is better than the other in that sense, but. Oh yeah, I definitely agree. Like I think of 
you know, the skills I honed in as a piano performance major. And I think, well, I'm definitely not necessarily applying this to a beginner student right now. Exactly. We're just trying to differentiate between finger two and finger three right now. So yeah, mainly I, yeah, mainly my life is focused on general music education, especially in the elementary world. Um, and in my position, I typically teach elementary music. So the kids get um, general music class every week for 30 minutes and then they mm -hmm. also have uh, when they reach fifth and sixth grade they have the option to join chorus and my chorus is non-audition I have the choice to make an audition or not and I thought nope we're gonna make it non-audition because this is the first time that many of them are joining a choir and I do not want to be that music teacher who turns down a child because they quote unquote can't sing and then they never yeah. sing for the rest of their life. Like that's yeah. one of the super sad. So my choir may not sound like heavenly angels, but they're definitely having a lot of fun in there. And a lot of them really join because their friends are in it or they just want to be with their friends. They want to be in a community. They want to be in a place where they feel like they belong. And that's what I aim to have in my chorus. And I have like a hundred kids in there. So when COVID hit and they, and then, you know, the, the requirements came out of saying, okay, we have to be six feet apart. I thought there is no way I could do chorus with a hundred kids. And now here we are in my, in my current situation. So my current situation is instead of seeing classes every week, I see them every other week because yeah. music time can't quote unquote um, conflict with their academic time in the morning, which <clears throat> music is a core subject, but that's yeah. another conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then they thought, well, you can't quite fit all your classes, Darlene, in one, one week. So I meet kids every other week yeah. and for 20 minutes used to be 30 minutes in the spring, so now it's 20 minutes to allow for time to transition in between. Um, and then they completely got rid of chorus because it's quote unquote not safe. And I thought, well, yeah, it really isn't the same if they're singing by themselves at home because my, my kids, they join chorus because they're with their friends and right now they're not with their friends. So I feel like yeah. even if I tried to have it happen, it's not gonna be the same and I don't think I'm going to have the same kind of enrollment like I had so I feel like that's a small part of you know myself that I'm missing you know teaching course teaching choir but you know this is all temporary <laughs> so yeah. I'm trying to have that mindset and yeah that's that's where I'm at right now yeah Just I mean surviving I, and I'm, trying to thrive <laughs> yeah I'm definitely struggling with the same things um I'm used to so I teach uh, a seventh and eighth grade band and I teach a nine through 12 band so I have seven through 12 in my program and I went from seeing my everybody for you know lessons once a week and I went from seeing my high school band to four top four out of five days a week and my middle school band um two out of five days a week to my middle school band every other week like in your case and my high school band once a week in person. And then they're, they're doing this weird hybrid model in my school where like we're in person and then we're virtual that we're back and forth, depending on what group you're in. And it's absolute madness. And I do agree with you and the struggle of, you know, kids want to be there because their friends are there and they're there for fun. And like, yes, music is an academic subject, but it's also a great place for kids to not, you know, be in desks and in rows and <laughs> focusing on all of that content, just being thrown down their throats all the time. And it is, you know, this place for collaboration and things like that. And they're just not getting that this year into in the extent yeah. that they would in normal years. And it's very disheartening and it's very frustrating for me as an educator that I'm not able to provide that experience. And I know it's not my fault, yeah. but it is something that I'm struggling with because that retention piece that we're always worried about as music educators is a major problem this year. Um, yes. Keeping kids in music programs, you know, trying to explain to parents like, yes, this sucks. We know, <laughs> but it's temporary. <laughs> and like trying to even just convince ourselves of that is such a struggle for sure. I know, especially that we, we tell ourselves it's temporary but we, in a way, we can almost find comfort in that phrase if we know when it's going to stop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I think, oh, like I, I'm bleeding. Oh, it's temporary, of course, because I know I'm going to stop bleeding in a few 
seconds or whatever. But this, this is not definitely not just bleeding. This is something else. And we can't, we can't predict how long this pandemic is going to last. And that, that definitely takes a toll on everybody. Um, but speaking of the whole time frame of, and retention, the number one question, and I mean, you can even let me know if this, if this happens to you, but the number one question I get asked a lot is, so how do you even teach music? And I'm thinking, mm. so you, like, of course I teach music. Yeah. And I think it's time management. You have to go super fast pace. And I, th- and I think of, you know, now that I only have 20 minutes every other week. Now, of course, now my planning has been totally shifted. My mm-hmm. curriculum plans from last year is just, nope, we're going to do something entirely different. So I feel like there's this perception that, oh, you have so little time. So how do you even teach? Like, what do you even do? You know, so, but it is possible. And I think that's something that, um, that isn't really understood from the outside. Oh, yeah. Or, or even in the inside. I mean, we had this whole debate this past summer before school started about, you know, what we should do in music classes and those things. And I had someone in my district who was pushing for having all the music, the secondary music ensemble rehearsals be study halls because oh, okay. he didn't think it was possible for us to teach music. And I'm like, what do, what do you mean it's not possible? And I, and I was like, yeah, you know what? They may have all these restrictions. Maybe we can't play instruments at the beginning of the year, but that doesn't mean we can't teach them music. What are you talking mm-hmm. about? <laughs> yep, there's so like, there's history, there's oh, composition. There's, exactly, oh, there's I was trying so to convince much. them of this. It was, I was like pulling my hair out. Oh my gosh, I was so upset. Oh, same, same thing. Like, especially in the elementary world, we've, um, I've seen teachers are go like, we can't do what we do. I'm like, what do you mean we can't do what we do? They're like, we can't sing. I'm like, that's not the only thing we do. Yeah. We we play boomwhackers. We play ukuleles. We we learn again like history. We learn how to compose. But they're like, we can't sing. We can't sing. It's like that is one of the many things you could do in music. So if you're gonna have that attitude. Well, sucks to suck, but I'm just kidding. But I mean, that, I mean, it makes sense that it would be so hard. But then I think that person must think like music education must only revolve around singing. And that's yeah. a very narrow, I mean, in my opinion, I feel like that's a very narrow view of what music education is mm-hmm. because it's so much more than that. So much more. Yeah, I completely agree. You had mentioned before when you were talking about this idea of competition in music programs and you were saying how, you know, you don't. I use the term chair kids because I'm a band person through and through, but you don't, you know, you don't have that sense in your program. And and I completely agree with you in that. I don't think any program with young kids should be doing that at all whatsoever. Um, I mean, I came from a program where we were chaired in fourth grade band and that's the way it was. And Mm -hmm. I was one of those kids who just happened to be first chair and look at me now, I'm a music teacher because that's always what ends up happening. But at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily promoting the values that we want in a music program. And I was wondering if you could just delve a little bit on your philosophy um, surrounding that as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I totally, I totally feel you on that. Like, I remember being in several meetings over the past few years with my instrumental team. So in my district, there's, you know, there's me, you know, T- TK through six, general music slash fifth and sixth grade choir. That's one role. And the other role is instrumental, which is fourth through eighth. And oftentimes we'll meet and think, okay, what, what are the ways we can, um, you know, make sure there's consistency in what we're teaching? Because a lot of what the elementary music teachers will do, will go, okay, we teach rhythms going ta and tt. And then the instrumental people go, oh, no, we don't do ta and tt. We count. We go one, two. So yeah. then some people, some elementary teachers will go, okay, I'm going to start, you know, teaching and drilling note names on the treble clef and the bass clef by third grade. I'm going to make sure we know how to count. And then I think, like, that's awesome. That's great. But it's like, is the purpose of elementary general music to prepare all kids for band? Mm-hmm. Like, no offense to band, but it's like, but not everybody's going to enroll in band. What's wrong with just teaching music for the sake of teaching music? Um, and for the instrumental teachers, it's like, you know, we could continue to bridge that gap. Say, hey, the ta you say here is beat one in here. You know, yeah. but like, it's the yeah. same thing. Mm-hmm. But this whole idea of like, oh, elementary music teachers, like we have to make sure they know this and this concept so they're ready for orchestra, they're ready for choir, they need to know um, all this solfege so they can sight sing by sixth grade. I'm thinking like, I mean, that's a great skill to have, but 
not everybody's going to enroll in choir. So when you have a kid who's learning all this solfege and you tell him or her or them, hey, you're going to enroll or you're, you need to know this because you're going to know this in choir. And they're like, I'm not going to be in choir. They really don't see the point. Yeah. They're not going they're not going to be interested in that. So I think for me like my philosophy is thinking more like music for the sake of teaching music, but also showing that anyone can make music and really tapping into the potential of what every kid has and every child is different. Like we'll yeah. have kids who are naturally born amazing singers and I'll go, "Okay, cool. Like I want you to try doing this in I want you to try singing this this part in our song. Um, I'll have kids that are really into hip hop, so I'll say, "Hey, why don't we tie this this piece of history to something that happened in rap, in hip hop history?" Um, one of the moments I discovered, okay, I definitely need to expand to this was last semester when I started using Soundtrap because Soundtrap was free for I think what three months or something mm -hmm. I thought oh I definitely have to take advantage of this and before COVID COVID shut down all the schools I was doing a, um, an ukulele unit with my sixth graders and then I thought okay well we can't really do ukuleles now so we're going to do Soundtrap and so I just said okay compose something with a bunch of loops, different things like that. I kind of gave them a guide. I said, but you can be free to do what you want to do. Like, show me what you show me what you got. And I had this one student sing this beautiful song about her struggles with not seeing her friends. And there was this little piano accompaniment. I thought, this isn't a loop. And like, I did not assign this specific <laughs> thing to her. And I'm emailing her going, um, hey, so can you tell me more about the song? She goes, yeah, I wrote it. And it's about this and these are the lyrics. And I'm thinking, girl, you need to keep doing this. You need to keep, you know, writing songs. And so I forward, I forward her information on a songwriting camp I knew was happening over the summer. And I thought, if I had not done this soundtrack assignment, I may not have found this gift in her. And who knows yeah. if other people in her life are encouraging this in her. Yeah. I, I don't know that. She hasn't told me that. But I'm thinking, but, and I'm thinking it is so much more valuable when when that encouragement is definitely coming from a music teacher. Yeah. Because I've sure. had I've had teachers and even met some teachers who like some students would say, Oh, I'm really into this, I'm really into that and they and those teachers would go, Oh, that's not real music or mm -hmm. okay, that's nice, but you should practice more classical piano because we're not focusing on that right now. And that breaks my heart. Yeah. Because yep. Because then it's like then that per like if a kid comes up to you for lessons and they think, oh, I really want to play this thing from Hamilton, and then the teacher goes, that's nice, but um, it's not really, it's too advanced for you. It's like, oh, it's too easy. Like, there's not much we can do. Then that, that kid will think, well, this teacher doesn't think or doesn't value my music, so why should I keep learning from them? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I've... I have a lot of friends who are my around my age and they've taken piano lessons as kids, but they're not piano performance majors. They're, they're not, you know, playing concertos or whatever. They're just playing in bands or they're playing in church or playing for fun. And I would ask them like, Hey, like how long have you taken piano lessons? Why'd you quit? All of them would say the exact same thing. My piano teacher didn't really do much on improvising, didn't really yeah. like the kind of music I liked. And I'm thinking there's something wrong with <laughs> there's something wrong here. <laughs> yeah, or I can agree. Yeah. And I feel like that there's a there, that's a reason why there aren't for me, maybe I don't know, maybe I have to be on the hunt more. But I feel like that's part of the reason why I don't see a lot of piano teachers my age now. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel that because you know, we kind of get rid of that love and joy of just doing music for the sake of music at a young age, especially yeah. if we focus on one specific type of music. You know, you're talking about all of this with regards to, you know, inclusion and that sort of thing. So what is, you can name one thing or multiple things that you would like to see change with regards to music ed and this idea of inclusion and diversity and those sorts of things that you've been talking about? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> I listen, I love listening to your podcast, Cassidy, because I feel like all of your guests have just a wonderful, rich perspective on these issues. So I'm always like, yeah. oh, I'm so encouraged. I'm going to feed into this. But, oh my goodness, where do I even start? Well, one I could definitely mention is 
in the piano pedagogy world um because i try to keep tabs on what's happening through these some organizations i see what's happening in their conferences and things like that and i hate to say it but they tend to run a little behind when it comes to expanding their view uh beyond just classical music or some some places will think okay we're all about artistic excellence but in reality that means can you play this Beethoven sonata by the time you're 16 kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, there's not really a mention of, okay, are we honing in skills on how to play jazz music? I mean, I'm starting to see that more um, or how to play more pop music. Even I always see things like on Facebook groups or from other piano teachers saying, okay, gosh, my student, they want to learn how to play like chords and lead sheets. Like, what do I do? What do I do? Where do I find these resources? And I'm thinking, why isn't that normal? Like, why isn't that a normal thing for us to teach, like teaching that specific style? Like, why do we have to always think, okay, classical or piano lessons is in the route to making sure kids can know how to sight read, number one, or, you know, on be on the road to play Mozart or Bach. I've sensed that in that world and I'm trying to be more involved in those systems so I can not only understand those systems but also try to challenge those systems more. Because I think of, I also think of like method books for example. A lot of piano teachers will think, okay like what's the best method book and they'll think, oh this is really good and this is really good. But then I think, okay but these method books are tailored made for maybe two or three specific kinds of students. What if one student yeah. learns from like, can learn from two or three different ones, then what? Um, but then I think those method books are, that's it. They're just, they're just methods on how to learn music, how to read music and have good technique. But not all method books necessarily were made to to make sure students enjoy music and can really connect with it. Like I always hear from my students, oh my gosh, this, this piece is so boring. I'm like, of course it's so boring because we're working on thirds the entire time and there's no yeah. like, fun hip hop accompaniment to go with it. It's just like boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. I get it. Like I totally get it. So I would try to, you know, transform that for them. But I think why aren't more curriculum materials putting student engagement and student content first? Yeah. Or, Yep. Or I think of like when people say, oh, let's do what, what is best for children. But I feel that sometimes when we think, oh, what is best, we think of more like their learning outcomes mm -hmm. um, over like their enjoyment of the process. Like, for example, yeah. um, like when you're advertising, why music is important. So I'll see like, oh, music's important because it will help help, you know, develop your brain. And I'm thinking like, what kid said I really want to do music lessons or I really want to learn the bassoon because it's going to help me solve my math problems like what I've yet to hear a kid who would say that so I get when when p teachers will say okay I'm going to get all this research to support my belief and I and I can see how this can convince parents mm -hmm. but what about the kid yeah what yeah, does the yeah. Kid want? yeah and I, I think that what are your thoughts on that Oh yeah, I have I have plenty, girl. Trust me. <laughs> oh yes, give me all of them. <laughs> uh, uh, first, when you were talking about yeah, this idea of music for music's sake, right? It always used to irritate me growing up because the back of every single one of our band programs was the one. It was like the one quote, like "Music is a math," blah 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 blah. Music is a science, blah 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 blah. I'm like, can't music just be music? right yeah. instead of <laughs> music. exactly and we we have and i understand the original purpose of it right because we had to fight for so long to mm -hmm. have our programs be included in yeah. a student's curriculum and i don't know how it is in california but in new york state kids are required to have music as part of their education so that was a long fight and i understand like those are probably the necessary steps that needed to happen <laughs> in yeah. order for music to be included. We had to. Like we're over... valid. We're real. 
Yes, we had to like over justify ourselves like, hey, you know, like my class helps with all of these classes. Look at this. And we had to say things like music makes you smarter when music doesn't make you smarter and things like that. And why and there's no reason for that now. Right. Like music teaches Mm -hmm. music skills and also has a lot of social emotional learning benefits as well. But I don't sit there and I say I'm teaching my kids math. Because, yeah, there's math and music, but that's not my job to teach the math, right? Oh, yeah. So, we don't teach music because we know, like, when I go into the classroom, like, oh, I can't wait to teach them music because I know it's going to help them with their addition today. Exactly. That's, yeah. not, that's not the first thing we think of. I'm going to help you with your fractions today, kids. Like, uh-huh. no. Like, I, like I, we I tie those that. connections for sure. Yeah. But that's not the first th- – that's not the reason why we came into this to this career, and that's not the first thing we want – students to experience we want them to yes tie those connections but think yes but we're making music because music is part of who we are music is part of our humanity yeah exactly and you were talking about method books and i completely agree with you on in everything you said about the method book and um from a band perspective a lot of the method books that we are giving our children are were like written in like the 40s and the 50s and things like that and the oh oh there are some uh some very uh racist (laughs) okay there better word (laughs) beginning band books things that we would never be teaching kids today or i would hope we wouldn't be teaching kids these songs today but there oh there was one i was going through one to give um some of my beginning clarinet players some exercises to play from and i don't stick to a specific method book because I see issues in all of them. So I am very much a holistic, like let's pull something from here and something from here and something from here. I don't, um, I'm not religious and following one method, but there was like one page and on this page, it had one exercise that was called the minstrel song. Oh gosh. And then the next <laughs> exercise was 10 little Indians. And then, no, it would just get even worse. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm sitting there like, I'm not giving this to my kids. What? And it's, it's, it's that. So like a lot of these tunes are outdated and they're not tunes that we should be teaching kids at all, frankly. Right. And they have a lot of historically terrible connections. So Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there like, okay, so not only is this outdated, but it's also like what kid wants to sit there. And if you go through any beginning band book, like the first, like 12 plus lessons, the kids are literally just counting whole notes and half notes the entire time. So, like, they'll play Jingle Bells, right? But it'll be like, ba, 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 press, press, ba. Oh, my goodness, ba. yes. And I remember. The parents have to sit through that. Yes, and, and, and not only that, but I remember when I started trumpet, I hated practicing. I hated it because I would sit there with my lesson book, and I would just sit there counting whole notes and half notes and wanting to smack mm-hmm. my head up against a wall and I would just get so frustrated because I was like, this is so boring, right? Mm-hmm. If we want to make music exciting for kids, then we can't just expect them to sit there and just actively want to count whole notes at home. Nope. So that's, mm-hmm. I have so many issues with method books in that way as well, because there's no reason why a kid should be sitting there counting whole notes for the first two months of that they're in the beginning band. There's no reason. Yeah. For it. Like, why can't they, why can't they mix it up a bit? Like, exactly. I mean, I, my, my teacher brain's going, okay. Like, if you have this boring whole note piece, okay, find find your favorite song mm-hmm. on YouTube and play whole notes to it. Well, I mean, it might, well, depending on the key, of course, and whatever notes they're actually playing, but do that. Okay, now why don't you, like, improvise on that? But I feel like method books, some method books don't even have that as, like, an option. Oh, no, no, it's all, like, yeah, it's just, rhymes. like, yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, just play this, okay, next song. Yeah, and it's not even—it's um, not even like with beginning band that they're trying to necessarily teach the wind band repertoire to kids when they're in fourth grade. They're not—they're teaching them little nursery rhymes. So what's wrong with them learning a song by Lizzo? Oh yeah, like what? What makes that? What makes learning the itsy bitsy spider so much better than that? There isn't. If you're—it's the musical concepts you're teaching the kids. So you can write an arrangement of a tune by Lizzo that teaches the same musical concepts that them learning itsy bitsy spider will do right because the goal is are they able to read this rhythm right are they able to play the right pitches yeah. blah, blah 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 
why, what's wrong with, why, why does it matter, you know, what we use to get there as long as we're getting there. And then they're also enjoying themselves at the same time. Cause they can go like, mommy, mommy, look at what I can do. And they can play it for them. And the parents will be like, wow, that's so cool. Right. Your teacher seems really cool because they're teaching you something that you actually enjoy listening to. Yeah. You know? Something that they actually enjoy, not just the same I'm sorry, but the same hot cross buns exactly. over and over again. I'd have never tried a hot cross bun ever in my life. I mean, <laughs> I could probably take a dinner roll and just get a knife and make an X over it. I mean, I mean yeah, is that a hot not, cross they're bun? definitely not a penny or two anymore either if they do exist. So, <laughs> And exactly, like definitely not a penny. And yet it's funny because I still have kids who are thinking, oh my gosh, hot cross buns. <laughs> like, wait, what? These children are still into this? Oh, children, they are so funny. Um, but yeah, yeah but I totally agree with you on that. What 12-year-old wants to sit there and play, like, Itsy Bitsy Spider? Exactly, like, no. Um, yeah. 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 They don't, they don't want to do it. And then that's that's where you lose kids, too. Um, unless they're, you know, the very super motivated, overachiever kids, mm-hmm. perfectionists. Those are the kids that end up excelling in a middle school band program because they're the kids that will put up with these norms that we're talking about for yeah, long they- enough that then they they end up enjoying music. Yeah, but it takes until that they're in high school and they can appreciate the level of repertoire that they're playing and they can appreciate, you know, playing in an ensemble with people because they've been in there long enough that those people become their best friends that they're like, Mm -hmm. okay, we buy into this now. But it's, there's, there's no system of having kids much earlier buy into music. And we could easily do that if we just threw all these norms out the freaking window, but we just don't have enough people that are buying into it now. Yeah, exactly. Like, especially I I think back to when you mentioned there was a piece called The Minstrel Song and Ten Little Indians Mm -hmm. um, in that book. And oh, gosh, this question always bugs me. Teachers will say, oh, no, but if I have to take that, I don't know why I'm talking like this, but like, oh, no, if I have to take that song out, what do I teach them then? I'm like, are you serious? This is the only song you use to teach them staccato like really right yeah like i hear that all the time i don't know about you in the band world but i hear that all the time especially with piano teachers they think that's always their rebuttal like that really this is your rebuttal like you Mm -hmm. you really cannot think of anything else oh make up a song call it if your student's name is bill call it the bill song bill is doing a staccato Yeah. yeah it's also i think part of that has to do with um we are we are comfortable teaching what we know And this is the problem of this cycle that we're talking about where, you know, everybody uses the same method book or whatever, the same Mm -hmm. way of teaching. And and people are comfortable teaching that way because that's the way that they were taught. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So somewhere along the line, this book that I saw those songs in or tunes, whatever you want to call them, this book that I saw those exercises in that I was about to give one of the kids in my lesson group was a book that I used when I was in middle school. So I'm sitting Mm -hmm. there going, at some point in my life, I played the minstrel song and I played 10 Little Indians. Do I remember Mm -hmm. when that was? No. But at some point, I played that. And that's not Mm -hmm. okay, first of all. But second of all, it's not okay for someone like me to look at that and have the knowledge now as an adult of the Mm -hmm. historical repercussions of those songs and to just give them to kids but the problem is we become so comfortable and this is the way that we were taught so i'm just gonna copy and paste right yep exactly oh people, it's just easier i don't want i don't have time yeah. to do the research kind yeah, of thing yeah be, people don't put in the time to think out of the box either or really we, we emphasize this idea in education of relationships first right like building relationships with your mm-hmm. students and things like that so you actually have to put the time in and invest in figuring out what your kids are into Mm-hmm. in order to properly teach them and to in order to provide that individualized instruction and all those yep. buzzwords that we talk about in education if you're teaching them a song that's you know was in a method book from the 1940s that's okay obviously as long as it doesn't have these you know racist things about it right oh i know right? um but you also need to get them to buy into it as well so maybe you're also teaching them something that they're actually into learning about. I mean, I, I talk to my middle schoolers and my high schoolers all the time. I teach them how I choose repertoire for mm-hmm. their concerts. I talk yeah. to them about my process and I'm like, okay, so this is what we need in a concert. We want some pieces to contrast. We want some pieces from different time periods. We want mm-hmm. some, some pieces by different people, right? And I talk to them about this and then I 
task them with, hey, if you go out here and you do some research, I show them all the places that I look for new music. And I say, you go out there, if you have some time this weekend and you want to research some music, come back to me, send me an email with what you want to play. Mm-hmm. And, oh. and a lot of times I do get emails from kids and they're like, hey, Miss Reed, like, I, I think it'd be really cool if we play this piece. I really like the sound of it. And then I check it out and it ends up being like a really cool piece. And I'm like, hell yeah, we can do that. So mm-hmm. getting your kids to also buy into it and be a part of the process of figuring out, hey, what are we going to learn in class? They feel like so much more ownership and like they belong mm-hmm. there as well. Yep. And that's also how we advocate. I think when people yeah. think, oh, we have to advocate for a program. So they think, oh, I have to go to admin. I have to go to my my um, classroom teachers. It's like advocating is also with your students because if you're saying, oh, music is important, but your kids aren't into your program, there's something wrong there. Yeah. They're yeah. not into it. It's like, they'll be like, why are you like pushing for music right now? But your music isn't fun. I mean, music isn't fun with, with you. Or you don't really listen to our special requests, so why are, why are you making sure this is important? Um, so yeah, advocating also is with our students, and we have to convince them that music is important by showing them that they are important too. And I think of like when teachers would say, "Oh, but this is minstrel song." They won't know. I'm sorry, we're in the age of the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe if we were back in the '40s. They wouldn't know, but now that we're in the age of the internet and these kids can look up anything, oh yeah. no, I don't even I don't even risk it. Yeah. Oh, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. Anything with that connotation just shouldn't shouldn't be in print, first of all, anyway. Um, but again, it's like that cyclical thing that we are talking about of people are just very comfortable with teaching what they were taught and being in that sort of mentality all the time and not you know, progressing forward with it. And I think that's one of the major things that's holding music education back as well. I wonder if it's because I'm thinking of teachers who are like that, like, oh, this is just the way I've been taught. I'm thinking mm-hmm. what what has normalized it in that in them? Like, was it their education that says, OK, now that you're done with your degree, this is all that you need to know and you're good or or would it be certain life experiences or is it certain PD that they put themselves into? Like, I wonder if it's a personal choice or the system, or is it a mix of everything? (laughs) I mean, I can't speak for other areas of music because, you know, that's not my experience, but from being a band kid, I'm going to circle back to band because that's what I know. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) I think the, the authoritative systems that are put in place, in a band program or in a wind ensemble or, you know, what have you, do have uh, repercussive effects on when teachers get out into the field, what they end up doing. I know my, my upbringing has had a lot of effects on some things that I, you know, kept with me that I use with my kids. And then there are other things that I said, hell no, I need to run away from that as fast as possible. Um, But it's me like actively realizing that, hey, that was a toxic environment. I don't want to put that on my kids. But I feel like some people, you know, go back into their habit. They may learn all of this new stuff in college, but then they resort back to their old habits. I also think you also mentioned the idea of professional development. I think that's another major issue in music education is that we don't have as many professional development opportunities, especially within our building and in our district that other content areas have. Um, I find that I have to actively like go out and, you know, go to a state conference or things like that and go reach out well beyond my district in order to find worthwhile professional development for Mm -hmm. me in my content area. Yeah. And is it required? That's another thing. Like, for example, my district has um, an anti-bias training, but it's not even put on by the district. It's put on by my teacher's union. And so it's just, uh, man, it's just, yeah, it's just there. But I'm like, if it were mandatory for all teachers, oh my goodness, that would make such a huge change because yeah, everybody and- is supposed to be in that. But then if it's just like on the side, like, oh, you could do this. It's like, okay, that's not really changing systems. That's just for yeah. people who are already sort of interested. But that kind of training is for people who already don't even have that initial thought in their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? no, I agree. And I, I think that's one of the, things that I can commend the district that I work for um, with is that we have an overarching theme this year of anti-racism. So Mm -hmm. all of our professional development has been surrounding that idea and 
you know, that is stuff that's required. We have, you know, our, our meetings that we do, which are now virtual. Thank God. Cause we started the year and they were in person and we were all sitting in the cafeteria oh and I'm like, we I'm are not, <laughs> this is not safe. What are we doing here folks? And then they went mm-hmm. virtual. So it was great. But all of these have been on surrounding this idea of anti-racism. And I think that's really great because there are people like me that feel very passionate about these topics that will go actively search for that professional development and will attend even if it is optional because I care about those issues. Mm -hmm. But like you said, unless we make it required, the people that actually need that information are not going to come. Their eyes are not going to be open to, holy crap, our education system does not provide the same resources to every Mm -hmm. student. Um, and things like that. And those are the people that need that, you know, awakening of, hey, you know, these systems exactly. that are in place do not serve all kids equally. Yep. And they're part of the system, too. Yeah. So, oh, my goodness. Yep. I totally agree with you on that. I just wanted to spin a little bit because I know I've been ranting a lot on my soapbox. <laughs> <about the band. laughs> well, I love it. I love <laughs> ranting with other music teachers because yeah. then it's just. I don't know. There's this little fire that's like, I just need to, I just need to talk about this right now. Yeah, I love it. This is I'm like so my, glad we have my this opportunity. therapy. It's great. It's my my <laughs> weekly therapy session because therapy is expensive. I am just here and I just talk to people every week and I get to talk about these issues and it's great. Mm-hmm. I love we it. All need I'm it here for it. <laughs> yeah, but talking about from a general music standpoint because you are a general music teacher and. As much as I love small children, I don't know if I could teach them all the time. I'm glad you exist. Um, Do you have any suggestions for um, general music teachers when we talk about this idea of inclusion and things like that? Do you have any suggestions for these teachers that are trying to make a more inclusive and accepting environment in their classrooms for all students? Do you have any strategies or content things that you have done that have helped you? Well, for me, I try not to think too much into it because I think some teachers will think oh my goodness how am I going to have number one time aka 20 minute zooms (laughs) the time to talk about these like racism how am I going to have time to talk this this and it's like okay they're probably thinking from the perspective of maybe like a second grade teacher who sees kids all day kind of thing it's like okay but it all starts with the values that we established from the beginning and so i mean obviously i don't start off the year with hey everybody we're gonna talk about and diversity and inclusion i mean you can't see me in but i'm like swinging my arm back and forth (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that would help with my with my silly voice no but anyways yeah so it all starts with um yeah your values and what what is your foundation in your classroom and so what i like to do especially for the little ones is use children's books children's literature and storybooks that that talk about how everyone is welcome here and i make sure that the illustrations have have everyone in there whether it's you know whether it's it doesn't even have to be a musical storybook it can be just like all are welcome here that's one that's not necessarily a musical book but i sing a song with it but i'm in i'm ground i'm grounding in the idea that everyone can make music no matter what and i feel like that basic value that is that is done in the beginning of the year that will set the precedence for the rest of the year because then when other things arise then you can tie back to hey remember that story we learned about you know back in September back in August and then you could tie back to that so I definitely use children's literature as a way to um, for as a way for children to see themselves in that Um, I also try to put more music outside of the typical like kodai like libraries where okay these are the typical folk songs we'll use to teach so and me or these are the typical songs we use to teach the difference between titi and ta so yes i will use that but sometimes we just teach songs just for just for the sake of singing just for the sake of learning another language like for mm-hmm. example obusana um it's a song folk song children's folk song from ghana and we just learned that, okay, it means, oh, no, um, my grandma, oh, no, my finger hurts from this rock. And I mean, I didn't necessarily tie it to um, so and me or whatever concept we were learning, but we were able to learn about people from Ghana. We were able to learn about the culture there. And I normalized that in my classroom. So trying not to think 
of, okay, I teach this stuff, and then, you know, only for a little bit we'll teach this song from Kenya or teach this song from Japan. But really see, like, part of my curriculum is tapping into all these different cultures in in that way. Another thing with also being inclusive is, which actually can be really tough, especially on Zoom, is because, especially with engagement, because I'll have my my class and then I'll have students who are um, of special needs who will come in because they're mainstreamed in that class. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, I'm not really like, I, how do I reach out to that kid? He's, he's not really responding. So it's being aware that, okay, I'm not going to just teach my Zoom class for one specific kind of kid. I want to make sure everybody has the chance to participate and be engaged. So making sure you're acknowledging them or thinking, okay, what are the three different ways I can make sure I can receive student feedback? Um, for example, uh, let's say I want students to type in the chat how they feel about something. Okay, like I'll do that. But then I know that a couple of students maybe typing in the chat would be difficult for them. So then I think, okay, just give me a thumbs up, thumbs down. So really thinking those options rather than, okay, everybody just do this one task. But okay, what are the three or four different ways that I can have students interact so that way everyone has a chance to succeed and respond and participate? That's great. I love all of those ideas. I think even just you were talking about using the books and everything in your classroom. I think that's always awesome because kids can apply the things that you're showing them in the book to music class and things and make those ties. And I think that's really great that you're doing all of those things. And obviously, you know, you're talking about, you know, the pandemic's going to make everything different. And I think everybody, you know, teaches at a different school with a different population of students. So maybe not everything will work for you, but hopefully something will to make, you know, your uh, environment, your classroom more inclusive as well. Um, I also wanted to talk about your awesome social media presence because <laughs> I just think it's so great. Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you have your own Instagram, the darling music teacher. And then you also have a TikTok, which I think is awesome. I actually just shared one of your TikTok videos onto the podcast Instagram story because it oh, made no. me crack up. I, Wait, which I love one was it? It was the one about music teachers are not. And then you went oh, through my the whole list. And I, loved I had it. feelings. Great. And I put it on the story. That's why I love having multiple Instagram accounts because I have like my personal one and then I have mm -hmm. my podcast one. So I can just surf through um, all sorts of different people. Yeah, your, your, your TikTok videos are hilarious. I love them. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your social media presence? And you also have your own podcast. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, sure. So it's really funny that you mentioned, okay, I have my personal Instagram, my teacher one. Yeah, mainly the reason why I started a teacher one is because I was starting to post more teachery stuff on my personal one. I thought, nobody cares about this. I think I need to go into a yep. different like realm of Instagram. So I thought I just need to start a separate one of anyone who really is interested in knowing about the music teacher world, they can follow me on there. Um, so that's what I did. And then, yeah, I, I'm in love with the music teacher Instagram community. I love the, the ideas that we share. I also love the idea of challenging other teachers' philosophies through Instagram too, because I think about other platforms. On Facebook, not necessarily. I feel like is the perfect avenue for that. I feel like Facebook's a different, different world for that. Um, TikTok, I definitely see that happening as well. But I feel like with Instagram, I I have, I I get a lot of followers who are not just are also music teachers, but people whom I feel like I can share ideas from, um, bounce, we bounce ideas back and forth from each other. So I'm really, I'm really all about that. I love the community there. Uh, that's so funny you mentioned TikTok. I feel like I only got it the, at the beginning of the pandemic just so I could understand what my students were talking about. Like, where, like, where are these dances coming from? Like, okay. Yep, I got one too. Now... I don't post on it, but I have one just so mm -hmm. I understand what the hell's going on. <laughs> now it's like, now I know what these dances are. Now I know what these trends are. Oh, okay. But, but I'm also seeing, you know, all these different, what do you call it? Different niche, niches, niche. Or what, I can't think of the word. Niche. Niche. Yes. Niche. 
I don't I want to say niche. I don't know. That's definitely not it. <laughs> yeah, there's different like there's definitely a music teacher community on that platform too. I will admit yeah. that it is a little overwhelming to try to keep up with both. So I just I thought I just need to stick with one. So I've just been sticking um with Instagram and I cheat a little bit with the with the reels. I just upload a TikTok video and put it on the reel. I thought, eh, kill two birds with one stone. Why not? But yeah, I just I love getting to connect with other teachers and getting ideas. And I feel Personally, I feel like I've experienced the most growth as a music teacher by connecting with other teachers on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a great team um, in my district. I love my team. But, of course, it's, uh, there's only so little of us. And But I feel like I need to know what else is happening around the country and around other states, what other people are doing. Um, and so that's initially why I joined. And uh, I just love it. And I also feel like well because i see my social media platform as more than just okay this is a lesson idea hey everybody i love that but i also feel like okay this is my opportunity to really advocate for students and for advocating that students come first over content like your students enjoyment over music should come first over okay they definitely nailed that four four pattern like i'm all about that so i feel like okay now that i feel like i'm getting more people in my community like this is my chance to help promote that and help challenge people to think more in that way and then so uh summer my one of my close friends but also my one of the teachers in my district she and i actually went to biola university together we decided to start a podcast because actually she had a dream to do a podcast for I think a year two years for the longest time but she didn't want to start it right away she wasn't sure about it but it what's crazy was around that time frame that she was mentioning this to me I had been thinking about a podcast for about a few months so when she mentioned that to me I thought wait I've been thinking about that too that's when we said okay it's a sign let's do it together and it's always so much more fun to do a project with with not just someone else, but someone who's your friend. Um, so when we thought, and we looked at each other, and, and then I looked at my podcast library, and I said, Nora, I listen to a lot of music teacher podcasts, but all of them, or not all of them, most of them are don't look like us. Like I, I was like, I think we're going to be the only female people of color, f- female music teachers of color doing this podcast and then yeah. we kind of like we thought this is our chance this is our chance to advocate for filipino and hispanic teachers who are thinking of getting into the field because when i was growing up i never i didn't even think filipino music teachers existed and then i was the only for i think let's see my conservatory wasn't huge but i was definitely the only philip no i was one of two uh, Filipino musicians in the whole conservatory and um, for my I think my, f- my I think yeah for about four four years straight there I was I was only one of two so there definitely is a lack of representation in my community so we thought okay this is our chance to really um, push that we are out here we are representing you guys and I feel that it's also an encouragement for for um, people who because for me growing up I was actually not encouraged to pursue music because, mm-hmm. well, then there's this perception that you can't really do much with music. You don't really earn a lot of money. I mean, I had the typical Filipino expectations of, oh, you got to be a nurse. You got to be a doctor. You got to be an engineer, whatever. And I thought, nope, that's not for me because I don't find joy in that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. Same with me. Yeah. Same for you. Were you encouraged to do music as a kid? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> It was, it was a very interesting conversation. So much like you at the very beginning, you were talking about how you, you had debated being an artist. I was in between being an art teacher and a music teacher, actually. Mm. Um, I took both, you know, all the way through and I was very passionate about both. I originally was going to go to school for performance, actually. Oh, My parents were like, don't throw all your eggs in one basket. Um, <laughs> they were also very apprehensive about me going into school for music as well because, you know, I was one of those kids that was like straight A, honor roll, did like mm-hmm. nine APs, like yep, same. <laughs> was one of those really diehard, try hard students. And, you know, a lot of people saw me doing something else. 
also at a very young age. And my mom actually ran into my second grade teacher while I was in the middle of college. And, you know, he was like, oh, well, what is, what is Cassidy doing with her life now? And my mom was like, oh yeah, she's, she's studying to be a music teacher. And he was like, what? He was like, so surprised. That's what I chose to do. Cause like, even that's in so grade, weird. Yeah. Like even <laughs> in second grade, surprised? I was a very like, I was very a uh, dramatic child and <laughs> I, I'm very much an introvert now, it. but that's just who I was when I was a kid and things like that. And I was a very passionate speaker and all these things, even like the age of seven. And so he like told my mom, he always saw me as being a lawyer or a politician or something like that. <laughs> and so, um, uh, yeah, so I, I definitely agree with that. It's, it's very weird, um, familial perceptions about music especially if you don't come from a musical family like I mm-hmm. I didn't either um so there's a very misconstrued notion of what is music and what you can do in the music profession as well it's it's very um different um than what they may think it is yeah. so I do agree with you there yeah and I, I mean I'll be honest throughout my entire college career uh it's not like I would hear oh Darlene I'm so excited you're doing music like I actually got the opposite. I would get phone calls and it wasn't quite, you know, the most encouraging thing to hear. And that was already, I mean, I mean, just trying to, you know, fit in these practice hours and then try to prepare for juries and then hearing, oh, but is this really for you? Like that was definitely hard. And there were times where I thought, is this major even right for me? Like, mm-hmm. am I in the right path because of that discouragement? Oh, of course, like, fast forward years later, I obviously graduated, and my parents are definitely happy now. But to yeah. think I had to, in a way, prove it. Yeah. Prove that pursuing music is worth it. And yes, I'm not as going to be a starving artist. <laughs> like, I actually can pay for my bills, and I have health insurance <laughs> and different things like that. So I think it's definitely, I want to encourage other people who are thinking of pursuing music and it's and it's definitely hard when there is pressure to to think of something else because it's not ideal but I want to show to those prospective teachers that hey it's possible um I mean yes that there will be struggles in the long run but if the door the, the doors are open for you like you will be a voice for so many other uh other students so yeah yeah, so that's why we started our podcast to talk about just various issues because we actually do have a wide range of people who listen. Like half of we check our stats and we think, oh, wait, half of our listeners are teachers, but the other half are just friends. So, that's but great. Thought, well, yeah, which we actually really prefer because this is a way we also advocate for music teachers because when we, of course, I mean, I'm saying the word advocate a lot, but the way you advocate is also you reach out to people who aren't in your field. Mm-hmm. So you can't just preach to the choir because they're obviously going to agree with you. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> which is, musicians, of course music is important. That's what I do. Yeah. Exactly. And which is like, yeah, we have people cheering for us, but it's like, but we want to also spread, uh, spread this knowledge and spread our insight to people who, you know, have not thought about these issues, especially through a teacher's perspective. So yes, we are, we love the project. Um, I would even receive comments from people saying like, hey, I'm so encouraged by this. I actually have, there was one review I saw on our podcast that said, okay, as a Filipino music educator or as a Filipino person who's studying music education, this is so encouraging. And my heart just melted because I'm thinking, yeah. oh my goodness, this person sees herself in me. Yep. And I wish I had something, I had wish I had a person like that to look up to when I was in college. So, oh my gosh, yes. We love being able to, to, to minister through this. Yeah, I love it. My last question for you for today is, um, we were, we've been talking a lot about the pandemic and teaching through all of these things and the kind of obstacles that we have had to endure as educators and that sort of thing. So what do you hope for that this time of stress and anxiety and these social justice issues and all these things that are occurring in our country, uh, what do you hope that this will bring for music education in the future? What are you hoping to see when all this is over? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I hope for many things, actually, no. But I definitely hope for music educators to prioritize human needs over just musical content needs. So I think 
when sometimes we think, oh, music education is important, and then we think that equates with knowing musical literacy and being fluent in knowing this instrument or knowing how to like sing in this way. But we come in, we decide to be music teachers because we connect with music. We know it's part of our humanity. We didn't decide to be music teachers because, oh, I can't wait to teach kids how to have the right intonation. Like, that's not the first <laughs> thing we think of. Yeah. Like, we, if we really sit down and think, why do we become music teachers? Then that should really be the priority in how we put it into our students. And I feel like definitely the pandemic has challenged us to think outside of the box, like what we mentioned. And so I really hope that that music education continues to think outside the box, continues to put students' needs and enjoy over you know, just trying to know the information too and thinking and redefining like what is best for children? Is it best for children? Because that's what the stats say when it shows, oh yes, their brains, their brain skills are have improved or is it best because they have, um, they have input in what they get to learn? Does it revolve around what they really enjoy? And are we being challenged to also use, to not be afraid of technology too, because that is the world our students live in. Um, a lot of the student, a lot of the music that our students consume are used with you know, digital audio workstations. So how are we even tapping into that? Like, how are we using that in our classrooms? Because that's also how we connect um, our music to the music they already know is saying like, hey, the music you experience um, on the like on the radio, on TikTok, this is how we can connect it to the classroom. So I'm really hoping that through this pandemic that after learning all these different different strategies, different platforms, that we continue to be challenged um, after this, that we don't go back to the whole like, oh, this is just the way I've done it. Now I can finally go back to my old school, traditional 1940s method book ways. Huh, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm hoping we don't go back to that. I'm hoping that we continue to look forward and see the potential of what music education can really do to transform students. Yeah, that's great. Darlene, I want to thank you so much for being on and for talking with us today and sharing your experiences and your thoughts. It was great having you. Yes, thanks for having me, Cassidy. It was so fun to connect with you and have our little mini vent session. Yes, I love it. <laughs>